I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern and it being Close Reads, I am joined by... My friends, Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. Angelina and Tim, how how goeth it? How goes it? What are we, how, what's the best way of saying that, you think? How gone it? How gone it? <laughs> how go- That's a little too past tense there. Sounds really? <laughs> well, how, how, is, how is it going, Tim? It's going well. I, I kind of want to talk about the last week of my life because I just put on this big theater thing. I was going to say you are, in Oregon. you are in the midst of or have recently finished uh, a and a uh, what's the uh, what's the Broadway version of Eugene Oregon? What, the Broadway version of Eugene Oregon? <laughs> what's the road? What's the road that you're uh, that you're that you're Oh, if it's not Broadway, it's, just had it's, its Main Street opening. <laughs> well, the irony is the probably main drag through Eugene is called Broadway. All right. Tim, Tim's yeah. putting on a Broadway show. Well, at least he's off Broadway, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm off Broadway. Uh, so so how's the play? How, how'd it go? Are you done or are you still doing it? Well, on Monday night, we did a performance and it was kind of a sneak preview. Okay. Um, because the, the play that we're trying to do is not just a play, but it's this kind of immersive dinner theater experience. Oh, right, right. And... I just wanted to make sure because there were so many moving parts. I mean, it was like a mini Circe conference. It really was. I think we had between, I think we had 42 guests, not including the actors and stage hands and people that were, you know, providing food, serving food, serving wine. Um, so it was a huge, it was a huge moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of moving parts. And we did a stage reading instead of a full reading. And it was just kind of a trial run to see where we were going to have pinch points and where we were going to, you know, is the, is the food going to work? And so it, it was kind of funny because, you know, you do an event so you figure out, you do a trial event so you can figure out how is this going to go in real time? And one of the, we figured out a ton of stuff like, um, one of the most dramatic moments of the play is a monologue from a nun and she's kind of um, confessing to something. And it's, it's a long, it's like a page and a half long monologue and it's serious and it's really intense. And right when she's in the middle of that monologue, the chocolate cake shows up. Well, there's, and, no, there's no such thing as a good monologue that doesn't include the arrival of chocolate I know, cake. I mean, you're not going to convince either David or I that there's ever a wrong moment for chocolate cake. <laughs> you know, I, don't think anybody, I don't think yes. anybody would. I might, I might go as far to say, Angelina, that if a monologue does not have chocolate cake, it is a lesser monologue. <laughs> I think we might be on agreement. I mean, it's not like you're like, she, then she picks up the knife and hacks this person to death, and then they're like, cranberry sauce, you know, like... <laughs> 
not seeing the problem here. I, continue. I, I do. I've always felt like to be or not to be also. obviously have been staged. Well, he's eating chocolate cake. I mean, I felt like that's the real lacking part of the Kenneth Branagh Hamlet. Now what if, I want chocolate cake, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> what if it was Titus Andronicus? Literally, I want you to really think about this. What if it's Titus Andronicus when Titus is, I can't, what's the name of the queen? He slaughters her sons and bakes them into a pie and invites them over for dinner so she can That's eat them. what I call good thematic menu planning. So right, if he like if the <laughs> cherry pie warm from the oven arrives during that moment of Titus Andronicus, I think that's a successfully that's a successful immersive theater event. Remind me not to take a, a drink of a beverage right as we are nonchalantly talking about baking people in the pies and making jokes about it. <laughs> anyway, Tim, would you like to finish what you're saying before before I butted in there about the merits of chocolate cake? Well, he started on chocolate cake. You can hardly be, I, you know, criticized for <laughs> diverging. I, I agree, but still, nonetheless, I should probably should give him the chance to finish. I think if we were going to stick with our theme, I think at that moment in the play, we shouldn't have been serving chocolate cake. We should have been serving leek soup. But I don't think that's going to happen. Anyway, it was it was a success. We learned a lot um, that we're going to use for the next when we actually open with a full blown performance on February twenty third, and I think it's going to be really good. People had a really good time. It's a it's it's a lot of fun to just kind of walk into a space and the whole space after the lobby is kind of just totally transformed into the theater. I love it. So is this the play that our listeners yes. want to hear about this anecdote? But is this the one that you were like talking about with Matt Bianco? And Yes. Okay. All right. Cool. And I owe Matt Bianco for the idea. Can I just like share the quick hook of the play? Sure. Matt, Especially a since lot of Matt Bianco, know. well, he'll appreciate that during this part of the show's banter, we shouted, you gave him a shout out. So I think yeah. probably, he won't actually listen to it. So yeah, say but I can, you I can, I can still tell him. Yeah. I mean, true. You, you can say what, literally whatever you want. He'll never know. <laughs> that gets him this might be the banter that kind of like gets him pulled into our banter <laughs> right yeah maybe nah, maybe not <laughs> so matt bianco is at the circe conference last year and he mentions a story that he hears from andrew Poudwa about memory the story is and apparently it's like a documented case and it's mm. more and more documented yep. cases of this are happening mm -hmm. that a middle-aged cafeteria, a white cafeteria worker, received a donated heart from a young black man who had died in a car accident. After the cafeteria worker recovered, then the idea was, well, after the cafeteria worker recovered from the surgery, uh, he started having this desire to listen to violin concertos and violin music and he had never had any interest in violin before and he thought to himself well it seems like it might be coming from my heart um but that can't be the case because young black males surely only listen to rap and hip-hop but he calls the donor's mother and he said you know did your son happen to listen to violin music at all and she said yes in fact, he was a very decorated violin player. Uh, he died in a car accident, and apparently the ambulance workers found him hugging his violin case to his chest 
And that's how they found him. So the transplant, there are evidence that like heart transplants and maybe other organ transplants are kind of like bringing memories with them. And Matt's idea was, what if you had a monk who voluntarily took on a heart transplant for, for out of religious conviction? And then it kind of morphed a little bit and it became, what if two, what if a nun takes on a heart transplant, but not just a heart transplant, she does a heart swap, a heart exchange with a, with a destitute woman who's made a lot of terrible choices, who's had a lot of awful experience. What if they swapped hearts in the attempt to kind of like physiologically sanctify this new heart and to give the other woman an opportunity to kind of restart her life from the inside out. Hmm. That's the idea. Hmm. And when did the chocolate cake come in? <laughs> chocolate cake came in right in, uh, right in the middle of the heart. Two thirds of the way through. <laughs> yeah. Surgery on the stage. And then just like, would you care for some chocolate cake? <laughs> well, Angelina, what about you? Uh, how's it going with you? Or, or are you just like so ready to talk about this book now? <laughs> I'm kind of ready to talk about this book. Things are good. I'm getting together my course lists for next year, trying to make some nice. hard decisions about how many sections of classes I, I want to offer and uh, trying to get that, you know, the, the business end of things I'm not so good at. <laughs> yeah. I'm so bad at it that, that I accidentally kept up the register now button on my website. And I've had like so many people register for, they don't realize they have registered for last year's classes. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. I've got that all sorted out, but no, I'm not good at the business end of things at all. <laughs> Well, I feel like you know Mr. Wilcox, and frankly, I'm getting by just fine without that. So you You just got to enlist. You just got to like get Karis to have some like. Well, I feel like people respond very well when I send them back this very professional. I'm the worst. I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, uh, You know, register again later when I have the right button up. Self-deprecation sometimes goes a long way. Hey, before we jump into this book, though, I do want to say a quick word from some friends of ours who are kind of helping make this show possible this month. And that is the Honors College at Belmont Abbey College, which, of course, you know a little bit about Belmont Abbey, uh, Angelina. I do. So if you have a student that is looking, thinking about college, looking for colleges, or you are a student who's looking for colleges then we would recommend that you check out the Honors College at Belmont Abbey, where you can join a group of morally and intellectually serious young men and women who are seeking wisdom through their great books curriculum. They have a number of flexible options that allow you to take any major offer to Belmont Abbey College while exploring the greatest works by the most brilliant philosophers, poets, theologians, and historians in the Western tradition. Their distinctive approach affords you the opportunity to participate in the highest form of friendship, a shared life dedicated to the pursuit of wisdom. So if you want to learn more, you can head over to bac.edu slash honors. That's bac.edu slash honors. That's honors how the Americans spell it and not how the British spell it. Again, bac.edu slash honors. A life well-lived awaits you at Belmont Abbey College. I'm so excited that Belmont Abbey is our sponsor. My son goes there, just made the dean's list, and he made me one very happy mother because he is, um, well, he's getting a psychology degree, but he told me this weekend he was loving his English classes so much that he was going to minor in English, and I was about to burst. 
first. <laughs> now, I'm also going to say this. We're just getting off the tracks. But I just, this was a moment, okay? So before he told me he was going to minor in English, he's taking a, a literature class and, and he texts me first day, you know, oh, we're going to be reading all these Flannery O'Connor stories and I'm going to have to write a paper, okay? So I'm just like, oh, my entire life as a mother has led up to this moment. Like, you know, I, I'm so, I'm not, I'm not going to kiss your bobos. I'm not going to bake cookies, but God, my child comes to me and says, I got to write a Flannery O'Connor paper. I'm like, I'm the woman for this job, right? I'm so excited. I'm sending him links. What are the stories? Here's our close reads episode on that. Listen to this, listen to that, listen to this. You know what this boy tells me? Mom, I appreciate the help, but I just really feel like this needs to be my paper and my thoughts. Like, well, well, well. Right? And I'm just like, no, don't take offense, Angelina. You've raised him to be this independent right. man. This is a good moment, even if I feel like I'm dying inside. Like, and of course, I'm just like, sure, you don't want me to read it? Like, so he comes home this weekend, he hammers out this paper, he tells me the thesis, and I was like, I've legitimately never thought of that before. Like, he just, he took the hymns they were singing in Revelation and applied it to the overall theme of the story. And I was like, well, okay, I literally have never thought of that before. And so he's in his room. I'm like pacing outside. Like, I don't have anything to do if you just wanted me to put some eyes on that. Like, I'm this mother. You're prowling. <laughs> I was totally prowling around. Like, if you just wanted me to put some eyes on that, Eli, I could put some eyes on it. He's like, no, 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 I got it. I think it's fine. So he goes back to school and he texts me. He's like, my teacher is wild about my paper. She says, it's amazing. And I was just like, wow, I'm so, I'm so proud. He, he did well and he didn't even need you because you he didn't, he you didn't even need him. me. You prepared him. So yes, I was super excited. And I love that he goes to a college where they read Flannery O'Connor. And, and sponsor podcasts like this. I know, right? This is amazing. He actually said to me, he texted me. The class started, you know, and so he tells me the syllabus. And so he reads about three or four Flannery O'Connor stories and he texts me. And this is the text. It took me a minute, but I think I really like Flannery O'Connor. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if it doesn't take you a minute, then it's probably probably a, week, probably a little odd. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, that is the exact right response. So there you go. That's my, that's my plug for Belmont Abbey and my son and my trials as a mother. Like I am, it's so funny because... I am such a hands-off mom that I'm basically negligent. Okay. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure if about, you should say that publicly. No, but seriously, I'm all about my kids are independent human beings. They're gonna live their lives. And then you see how that got tested the first time he has to write a Flannery O'Connor paper. <laughs> Suddenly I'm like, you sure you don't want to just talk like moment of grace, epiphany? I draw like, the line. I know, right? Like, son, let me give you some motherly guidance. <laughs> nope, he rejected me. So there you go. Well, <laughs> well, <laughs> That that is pretty cool though, and thanks to Belmont Abbey for for sponsoring and for um, reading Flannery O'Connor with your students. Um, we are here to discuss. Well, speaking of books that sometimes take a minute, we are here to discuss Howard's <laughs> End. Tim, you speak. You know, taking a minute. Books take you a minute. Let's let's talk about that. I just want you to sit back sit back for a second for me, and I'm going to lean back in my chair with my tea here, and I'd like you to. I'll just, how are you feeling about this book, Tim? <laughs> I don't know, David. I don't know, Angelina. I'm in a mix. I, I are love you, the narrator. Am I connected? Conflicted. I am. I'm conflicted. I think it's, it's, I think it's a really fine book. I really do. I just, I'm not really connecting to it. And I think it's a personality issue. It's not a, it's a, not a quality issue. So you're not, you're not saying 
that the book is is bad. You could just no. It's a good book. About. Yeah, it's a it's a. I think it's a really fine book. Can can you think of any examples of other books like this in your life that maybe you 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 felt that way? And I'm not saying this is going to happen to you, but that yeah. you felt like you you recognized the quality of it, but for whatever reason, it wasn't. You weren't really connecting with it. But then maybe later on, you came back and connected with it. I, I hope I haven't to told this. Yes, it, 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 the first time it happened to me was when I was a senior at college and I read Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. Have we talked about this? Anyway, I, done, I read that book. We've done a lot of shows, so I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure. I wanted to throw that book across the room. I was so, so frustrated by it. Um, I did not like it, but I wasn't mature enough to recognize the difference between me not enjoying a book and a, yeah. a book not being quality. Yeah. So I just thought it's crap. Do you, do you, okay. So if you weren't doing this show, uh, this is for you too, Angelina. Do, do you guys ever like, <clears throat> like read a book where you're, where you recognize that maybe it's not going to be a hard book, but that either because it's included in the canon of quote great books or good books or whatever, or because you recognize the merits and the quality of it, do you push through typically? Or do you just say, if it's not required, you know what? There's too many books to read. I know it's good, but I'm not connecting with it. So I'm going to put it back on the shelf and maybe I'll return to it in 10 years or something. What do you have a, do you have an approach that you typically follow or do you just kind of follow your instincts with that? Or what do you do? I'm, I know okay, this so, isn't related specifically to this book, but I'm, I'm curious about this because I think about this all the time. Well, this, yeah. is, this is definitely a reflection of just who I am personality-wise. I find it impossible not to finish the things I start. Hmm. So I, I Like it just I, troubles you not to finish it. It seriously troubles me. Yeah, so I yeah, finish yeah, I everything that. that I start. Like I just, I have this very, I've got to see this through, you know, <laughs> made yeah. this commitment. I'm going to read this book. I'm going to read this book. Um, how far in would you have to be to stop? Like two pages or like once you're a chapter and you're committed? It probably depends what we're talking about. If it's a classic, if I start it, I'm going to finish it. Okay. Um, if you're talking about something new, then I suppose. I see, I, I barely ever read anything new. And if I do, it's usually on a recommendation. Mm -hmm. So then I usually still finish it because I trust the person who recommended it. But yeah. in theory, if I just randomly picked up the new hot book mm -hmm. and read the first chapter and was like, you know, I really don't think this is going to be my cup of tea. I, I guess in theory, I would, I'd put it down. Okay. Tim, what about you? I'm, I am the Are same as Angelina. I, I'm the same as Angelina, but I, I think I just have probably a little bit less patience because if, if the book is a classic, I'm with Angelina, I almost always finish it. But there have been a couple of times that I have read books that have supposed to be classics, most recently, Jude the Obscure. <laughs> and I'm halfway through it and I'm like, this book is just not good. It's just not that. I mean, it's just, you know, it's got a reputation as a classic. Um, but that reputation must have been earned by some other means than quality. It's just not, it's just not a good book. You just, you just, you just like threw the, threw the gauntlet down about, about Judy Obscure. So anybody who loves that book, Angelina, you like that book, don't you? I have read all of Thomas Hardy's books except that one. Oh, okay. So you're not, I mean, I'd good. love to know what you think about it, Angelina. All I know about Tom, and this is the reason why I never read it. Okay. Cause I really yeah. like his other books. I mean, I love Tess of the Durbervilles. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, Eustacia Vi from the turn of the name. I wanted to name my daughter Eustacia Vi, but I could not get other people on board with that. But <laughs> <laughs> just come on, Eustacia Vi. You know, that's going to be a saucy girl. So um, 
I didn't read Jude the Obscure because one of my professors said that it was so dark and it was it was so poorly received when he wrote it that you know Thomas Hardy never wrote another novel. He just quit after that. Yeah. Wrote nothing but poetry. And I was like, hmm, that might be a message from the universe, maybe to chart other waters, you know. <laughs> Tim, Tim, have you charted his other waters? I think I tried tests when I was a much younger man, but this is not an indication of, you know, the quality of that book. I gave up on it, but that was more about me. That was more about me yeah. than that book. Well, that Victorian novels are going to be a little bit of a challenge for a younger man. I would think. I would think so. Yeah. It's not going to, mm-hmm. it's not going to draw you in right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's go back to Howard's end then. Cause we're ready to hear what, what I want to know what you think. What do you, how do you do this? If you read a book, that's just, you know, you know, it's a classic by reputation, but you're not sinking in. Do so, you finish it? So a large part of me is like Angelina. And I think maybe you said you're the same way. Like there is something like inside of me that really dislikes the lack of closure of quitting a book. Yeah. Like even if it's terrible. Um, but I'm more, I'm more likely to quit a book because I'm lazy and the book is too dang long <laughs> um, to be, just to be honest. But I, I, one thing that I've tried to balance in my life as I've gotten older, cause I realized like out after I was in college and I read so many books in college, you know, in the English department there that I didn't like that were considered great books or whatever that I didn't, either I didn't appreciate or didn't like that for a while after college, I just sort of was like, I don't, it's kind of weird to say for an English major, but it was almost like a detox from a lot of that, like that literary culture in some senses. So a lot of my reading was like, I was starting to try to, I sort of tried to just figure out what the books were that I loved. And I kept my reading habit going by like finding books that I loved and figuring out what those looked like and really pursuing those primarily. And then the last, like, you know, I don't know. That was the first couple of years after college. And then like in the last eight years or whatever, since then I've gradually been trying to expand my horizons, you know, like back it it told sort of the way they were trying to do it in college, but you know, I don't know, trying to be a little bit more like strategic about it. So I try not to read too many books that are going to be books that I know are going to be like outside my wheelhouse, so to speak, that I, that I can anticipate are not going to be hard books, so to speak. So I try to be like strategic about that. So like, I'm not going to yeah. read, um, try, I'm not going to try to bite off too many like long Russian novels <laughs> in one year, for example, like I, maybe I'll do one and I'll read it gradually and slowly and I'll try to read it while I'm reading other things. Cause that helps me like balance out books that I'm not like, like loving, loving, but that I know I should read if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So for me, like, I don't know what it was about college i loved being an english major and i loved my professors but there were enough books in there that i really disliked that i had to read or not disliked but like that i was tired of reading if that makes sense so i kind of de- went on a, like a detox binge and read like tons of that's when i picked up spine novels. <laughs> <laughs> um so david where are you with our book howard's end so i'm probably between the two of you mm-hmm Angelina, well, of course, we haven't said what mine is. We just yeah. said that off the air. So. Well, true. Okay, so yeah, why don't you well, say ahead. first? Well, I, I, I'm gathering from some of your comments that if it follows on what you said last week, like 
you're just waiting for the ring at this point, right? Oh, I've picked out the dress and the bridesmaids, yes. So Yeah, okay, so you're just waiting for the bended knee. I'll ask <laughs> if he doesn't at this point. This is where we are, like, you know. Okay, I got it, okay. He's in my sights. I'm going to lock this down. No, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. These are some of my all-time favorite passages that have ever appeared in a book. I mean, I am just, whoo, loving it. Yeah, so, okay, here's where I am then. So, Tim likes the narrator, but the narrator fr- actually kind of frustrates me. Like mm. the way it's the way, not, not the narrator himself, but the way Forrester uses the narrator. Um, but like Angelina, there's some pros, some pros and some passages that n- like knock my socks off as the kids used to say 30 years ago. And um, then there's times <clears throat> when the narrative arc of it is just sort of like, I have to make myself read the next chapter. But when I read it, I enjoy it, but I'm not necessarily like, I've got to read the next chapter now. I don't know if that, does that make sense? It's not that I dislike it when I'm reading yeah. it, but I'm not necessarily like, you know, give me another handful of chocolate right now, you know? <laughs> I would agree with you that it's not a page turner. I find that I am reading it very reflective and contemplatively. Like I'm commonplacing it. I'm texting yeah, yeah. my friends passages and I'm, and I'm thinking a lot about the implications of the things uh, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of what this book has been talking about is the exact same things I've been having conversations about with like my close friends. And so it's just mm-hmm. really interesting to see how he, he dovetails with so many things I've already been thinking about. So mm-hmm. I'm reading it slow. I'm underlying so many passages Hmm. and really thinking about about what they mean yeah and just to clarify when i say that i don't it's not as you put it a page turner i don't mean that as a flaw like i'm not saying that means that it's not good um it's just you know you interact with it different differently um Mm -hmm. yeah well it's not written to be a page turner yeah i was gonna say that fits in with this whole idea that he's creating distance right we're not not getting swept away in in the narrative yeah yeah well last week we talked quite a bit about uh, the idea of like romanticism, like capital R romance versus lowercase romance. And we were talking about this sort of, I don't know, pseudo romance between Margaret and Mr. Wilcox. And we were debating like, how did Mr. Wilcox, what was his sort of mindset behind the way he kissed her at the end of chapter 20? Um, and there's lots of stuff about the idea of like romanticism in these chapters especially 20 through to 25. But I want to ask you guys about chapter 21 first, if that's okay. Um, of course. And there's lots of online conversation. We were talking about this off the air about <clears throat> this concept of romanticism. And we'll touch on that. We'll clarify a few things and all that. But chapter 21 is this really, uh, it's either, I'll just use the word interesting. And I don't know if I mean it interesting in the good way or the bad way. But it's this interesting <laughs> interlude of what like 300 words or something in between you know these the margaret wilcox stuff and it's charles and dolly and you know their conversation and i can't decide if i actually think this passage is is should not be there or not um but i'm curious what you guys think about whether or not chapter 21 is actually uh useful and whether it's doing what it feels like he's setting out to do angelina what do you think about that well, I thought that Charles and Dolly are a, they're a counterpart, you know, a, a counterpoint. They they are the they're the anti-romantic couple. This is terrible. I want to punch Charles in the face. Uh, <laughs> he's just so condescending to her. Of course, she takes it and she plays the role. The whole family's condescending to her. There doesn't seem to be any genuine affection between them at all. Charles is just such a 
a distasteful character to me. Mm -hmm. I think he's distasteful to Forrester. You know, uh, he makes a lot. He doesn't. Okay, let's put it this way. He doesn't have the virtues that Mr. Wilcox has, right? He's not good at business. He stands primarily to inherit his fortune, we're told in this point. He has Mm -hmm. a lot of anxiety about what's going to happen to his children because it's all based on the inheritance, which is why he sees Margaret as a threat. Mm -hmm. Um, So he seems to be somebody who's really struggling to build a life and to find his place in the world. Hmm. Um, so he's not, he's not Mr. Wilcox for whatever I might li- not like about Mr. Wilcox. Mr. Wilcox clearly has virtues that are being presented to us, right? Um, he can make his way yes. in the world. Charles does not have any of that. Is he supposed to be a foil for, for Wilcox, Mr. Wilcox, for Henry? I think so. Like I had been thinking about the book primarily in terms of Helen and Paul and that relationship being counterposed to mm-hmm. Margaret and Wilcox. Um, yeah. Of course, we have the other couple, Leonard and and Jackie, which, of course, uh, you know, that's that's an extreme. It, and, and then you have Charles and Dolly. So that's another extreme couple. Maybe Charles mm-hmm. and Dolly are, well, I don't want to say they're the foil for Leonard and Jackie, but mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not exactly sure how they all work. But um, Leonard and Jackie seem to have gotten together when Leonard was sort of caught up in a moment, right? Like maybe when she was younger, she was beautiful and represented some kind of exciting life. And so they get caught up together and then it falls apart, right? But it's not like a pragmatic, this is going to be a good partner in life. Like we're going to make this good decision and we're going to be, you know. Whereas like Charles and Dolly seem to have gotten together because it was like the, the, the social decision that they were supposed to make. Right, right. So this idea of, well, it might be worth jumping into this idea of romanticism because there's the there's the capital R romance and then there's a lowercase r romance. And do you think that Leonard and Jackie were based are essentially supposed to have, you know, maybe when they were younger, as you said, there was something exciting that they represented for each other and all that kind of stuff. And so that's like lowercase romance where they sort of just you know, fell into something that they thought was going to be truly romantic, but they didn't understand the nature of like true romance. And so that's meant to kind of like be a counter to the more complicated uh, relationships that we're seeing, you know, between Margaret and Henry and so forth. Does that make sense? It does make sense. One of the things that I had hoped would happen is we'd get a little bit more of their backstory, but obviously we're not. So not yet, not yet. Um, you know, I, I, I'm only I'm only speculating, but mm-hmm. since the book seems to be setting up the inner life and the outer life, right? Um, and Helen being very committed to the inner life and feeling that Margaret has betrayed it by aligning herself with Mr. Wilcox. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that we are supposed to believe that. Well, I guess Leonard. What am I trying to say? Leonard seems conflicted between those two worlds, right? And he is he's not succeeding at either one of them. He can't make his way in the world in business, nor can he really give himself over to romance. Like he says, poetry is nothing in this section, right? Because he's poor Mm -hmm. and he's right. To be able to say poetry is everything and the only real life is the inner life is a luxury of people who have money. He's absolutely right. So he's almost like caught between two worlds where he's this romantic, poetic kind of person, um, but he can't make a living like that. But he's definitely not Mr. Wilcox. I mean, that whole... Mr. Wilcox being like, hey, that's how the dice rolls sometimes. And people like mm-hmm. Leonard sometimes just get cut out. And, and you always see that character in literature and movies that, and, and in life, right? There's just some people who can't catch a break, right? And other people who just get all the breaks. And mm-hmm. Leonard just is not going to be this guy who gets the breaks. I mean, how tragic. Like a Dickensian I mean, character. 
Yes. I mean, it's just so sad, right? He tries to make this wise business move and then it ends up blowing up in his face. Tim, Angelina says she doesn't like Mr. Wilcox after mm-hmm. 25 or whatever. Where do you send him, Mr. Wilcox? Do you dislike him as much as she does? And she hasn't given us reasons yet, so I, I don't know if we, you can really answer that. But I, nonetheless, the question stands. I don't like Mr. Wilcox either. I, like, I thought there was some promise there when Margaret and he got together. I, I kind of thought, you know... Margaret's going to love him for who he is. And maybe he, because he's going to be loved well by Margaret, maybe he's going to kind of move in her direction and he'll see the world as more than a series of business propositions. But in the chapters that we read, I, I'm not seeing that. I'm well, not seeing fact, that. Wasn't it so interesting that Forrester just slams the door shut on that? And it was another example where you think the story is going yes. one direction. And he's like, mm-hmm. nope. Mm-hmm. And he knew, he knew we thought the story was going to go in that direction. Yeah. He gives us this paragraph about how that's what her heart longed for, right? Mm-hmm. She was going to be this person to sort of awaken him to his inner life. But alas, no. <laughs> and then that's that. Yeah, and 22. Now we're set up for um, this, this conflict between Charles and Margaret that happens in 25. And we see a glimmer of it in 21. and. <laughs> I'm starting to get a little bit jaded. This is part of the reason why I'm just not crazy about the book is we're set up for Charles and Margaret to um, feel this sort of rivalry, or at least for Charles to feel rivalry with Margaret. I have a feeling it's just going to kind of dissipate into the atmosphere and we're not going to see any more of it because that's what our author has been doing. So it feels like it's a, he's just kind of setting us up for bait and switch. Yeah, I don't even know if it's a bait and switch. I think it's just bait and removal of bait. All right. So if we can be a little bit charitable to that, one of the things he says in the chapters that we've read is the same thing that he said previously, which is that there are false starts. There are false signs, right? That life always makes you think, oh, this is a significant moment. Something's going to happen here. And then it doesn't. So I kind of feel like he's doing that with the plot of the story, which is Mm. interesting because stories, of Mm. course, are the opposite of that whole random false start. Everything in a story is significant. You are shaping and crafting meaning on events, which real life, it's very difficult to do Mm. because he's right in real life. Gosh, I can't even tell you how many times I thought there was a sign of some monumental thing and then it's nothing. Mm-hmm. So it's just interesting that he's doing that to us as the reader, as he's telling us life is full of false starts. He's doing it to us. We're getting all, this is it, this is it, and it's not. <laughs> I, I, so and this is a question. This is a legitimate question. And let me just state the question. I don't know how I, I don't know how I would answer it. But because Forrester sort of can state the premises of his beliefs that um, life is full of stops and starts and false trails and missteps and meaning is elusive and we don't know exactly what you know life means, we're in the middle of it. Because he states that as a philosophical precept and because he follows through on it in the book, does that mean that should I say, aha, you were consistent in belief and in action, you win. The book is quality. 
you, that Mr. Wilcox was consistent in belief in action? No, I mean um, Forrester. 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 Well, I, I think what I hear you saying is, is that enough by itself to recommend the book as being quality? And I would say no, because there's quite a few works that I can say that about that I don't, I, that I think fail yeah. as art because they're just propaganda. Mm-hmm. Because the beliefs that they set up, the premises that they set up are... They re- yes, they remain like, committed to those premises and, mm-hmm. they, and they show them out working in the novel, but it doesn't have the ring of truth because I don't think yeah. it's how human beings act and behave. So, Like, so inner, like really, inner consistency isn't and, Yes, with reality. Yeah. Not yeah. just an inner consistency with your own beliefs because you can force yeah. a character to do all kinds of things that they would never do to make mm-hmm. your book work, but we're going to read it and just be like, nah, human beings don't act like that. This is not consistent with reality. I think, I think what you're kind of getting at though is... Well, I mean, I don't really know why I said though. I think what you're getting at, Colin, is that um, <laughs> it, uh, I, didn't, I really didn't mean to set that up as a disagreement. I was going, I was agreeing with you, and somehow the word though came out of my mouth. <laughs> um, is that like there are there are novels that are well crafted. There's works of art that are structurally sound that have all the elements that might make up a quality work of art. It could, it could be a movie. It could be a painting. It could be a piece of music or it could be a novel or a poem or whatever, or play. Um, but what you're describing, Angelina, what you seem to be getting at is, is that quality that pushes it like towards the transcendent, right? Like, like, like that makes yes. it lasting, that turns it into something that, that is a capital G capital B great book or great work of art or whatever. It's the thing that moves it beyond, you know, quality and, and good to, to, as I said, transcendent to great. Is that what you're getting at? Right. Yes. I mean, I think art has to be true, right? Like we all feel that. It has to correlate to some true reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think one of the hard things is putting your finger on whether or not a book is, like whether you're enjoying a book because it's true capital T or whether it's just because it appeals to something within us, you know, like, cause no, things, might, things might, I'm, things might appeal to me but that doesn't mean that they're capital T true, right? Like, yeah, right. No, that's absolutely true. You know, you read books that are kind of preaching to the choir, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They don't cause you to, to reflect on maybe, maybe you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's getting me about Forster's book is this. I think all of the great novelists, I think everyone that we have read from Dorothy Sayers to Flannery O'Connor to Wendell Berry, all of them would say, I believe, that real lived experience is exactly as Forrester describes. It's full of missteps. It's full of false trails. The meaning is over here instead of over there. I think all of them, because they are human beings, they know that life is not a melodrama and that life oftentimes doesn't make sense. And oftentimes we make sense of it kind of in retrospect. We look back and we say, oh, that episode, I understand now what it means. So all of our novels probably agree with Forrester with regards to the lived experience. Mm-hmm. But I think what, what I'm having a hard time with is what makes for a really great tale is that the narrative conveys purposeful meaning. And what I'm getting a little bit afraid of in the Forrester book, and I hope I'm proved wrong, is that no there is no there's not 
meaning in this tale, there's only like meaning in these kind of episodic moments. Okay, here's what I think about that. Ready for this? Yeah. The whole entire book has about, been about what is real, the inner life or the outer life, the seen or the unseen. I think the reason I'm so in love with this book is because it keeps falling on the side of the unseen is what's real. And that's why he keeps chopping up the narrative, not because episodes are the only thing that's real. It's because all of that is unreal. <laughs> you know, like, like, like how I said, I don't care what happens in this book. I just want him to keep talking. Like, that's what I'm talking about. For me, the plot is so secondary. I don't care what happens to these characters. I just want him to keep talking to me about the inner world versus the outer world, mm-hmm. the seen versus the unseen, how to harmonize those two things. Because for me, <laughs> not surprisingly, that's what's real. <laughs> So to me, the book is super real. Yeah, it seems, you know, like, and it it seems like he's in some ways, uh, he's writing a book at the perfect time to explore that idea. Because, because on the one hand, you know, as realism, like, is taking hold and like, are, are like focusing on the, on the, the, the aspects of like, the stuff that Tim, Tim is describing that makes it feel like real life but is troubling to him it's coming at the beginning of that or at least as you know but then it's also kind of bridging the gap with earlier literature and you can tell that forrester really appeals to and is you know enjoys capital r romanticism right like so he seems like Mm -hmm. he's bridging a gap when he's writing the book like he's bridging a time frame and so it's the perfect time to explore the concept that you're describing there, Angelina. But, and he's also doing it in a way without contempt for the outer world. Mm -hmm. So I have found that very, okay. So here's, here's my favorite line and it speaks to what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And it may go down as my all time favorite line ever of anything that's been written. I mean, this is how profound this was to me. Chapter. Chapter 23, about four paragraphs down. Yeah. I thought you might like this section. Yeah. Right. The businessman who assumes that this life is everything and the mystic who asserts that it is nothing, fail on this side and on that to hit the truth. Yes, I see, dear. It's about halfway between, Aunt Julie had hazarded in earlier years. No. Truth, being alive, was not halfway between anything. It was only to be found by continuous exertions into either realm, and though proportion is the final secret, to espouse it at the outset is to ensure sterility. Now, this was huge for me. Proportion, of course, if people have heard me talk about the medievals, proportion was the medieval virtue, right? For them, things go wrong when they're out of proportion. Um, and so I love that he just flat out refuses the Hegelian dialectic, right? This is not thesis, antithesis, synthesis. This is not the idea that you have your position, I have my position, the truth is somewhere in between. He flat out rejects that. I love that. Truth being alive is not halfway between anything. Instead, the truth is it dipping into both realms, right? And finding the proportion uh, between the two. That was profoundly meaningful to me. And and he's, and she, you know, this is coming as Margaret and Helen are talking because bef- like in the paragraph before that, Margaret's talking about, she says, you and I have built up something real because it is purely spiritual. There's no veil of mystery over us. And then she says, unreality and mystery begin as soon mm-hmm. as one touches the body. And like, it seems like Helen is, well, she says the popular view is as usual, exactly the wrong one. Our bothers are over tangible things, money, husbands, house hunting, but heaven will work itself, work up itself. And it seems like Helen is creating a dichotomy that Margaret's having, Margaret doesn't accept. Do you agree with that? 
Can you say that again? <laughs> well, I'm wondering if as they're debating Helen and Margaret, if Helen is setting up that this dichotomy, like you used, you know, you mentioned Hegel, um, then, but Margaret is not. What what we're getting here in this bit of narration is an, the inner workings of Margaret not accepting Helen's dichotomy. Yes. So spiritual I, and if, the, the if he is following kind of standard novel development, right. Um, where the, the part, the character, now there's some exceptions to this, of course, but the character typically who's given the most attention, this is the one that we are supposed to believe is following the right path. Right. And so, um, however much I might identify with the pure idealism of Helen, I, I do not think she is being held up to us as, the ideal mm-hmm. of uh, of be- human behavior, right? I think I I, I feel like Forrester is is speaking to us through Margaret. That Margaret is the right one, in that she is trying to harmonize these two. And mm-hmm. interestingly yeah. enough, harmonizing him in a way that changes neither Wilcox, who he is essentially, nor who she is essentially. I mean, you guys saw all those comments about how she wasn't going to stop being her, and he wasn't going to stop being him, and somehow they were going to love each other, <laughs> and it was going to all work out without either one of them not being who they are. So it seems like Helen is setting up the tangible, uh, like she says tangible things and essentially sets them, up, sets them up in opposition to the spiritual things. And it seems like Margaret is saying, well, not so fast. There's, there's this middle ground here that is actually where, you know, uh, proportion is the final secret, right? Is that, is that perspective of Margaret what allows her to accept Wilcox in a way that Helen never can? Is that, is that where we're getting to know Margaret in a way that, that makes her decision justifiable or, or her, the way she interacts with Henry justifiable? Yes. If we go back to the sentence I just read, the businessman who assumes that this life is everything and the mystic who asserts that it is nothing, okay? That's Wilcox and Helen. That, that's the two extremes, right? Mm-hmm. And Margaret is the one who's dipping in. She's not halfway, not by any means. But she, she is definitely the one dipping into both sides, right? She can completely see Helen's perspective and agree with it. She can completely see Wilcox's perspective and agree with it. And it's very important to her that she love her husband and be loyal to him, but also still have this close connection with her sister, which goes to the other quote, only connect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Margaret is trying to connect everything. And this, to be honest, this is why I, I, I can't, this is what rubs me raw about Wilcox is that, Forster says he cannot connect. He cannot and will not connect. And so that's just completely unacceptable to me about a human being because I think we're supposed to connect. I think that's like, what our souls want us to do. I, I don't think our souls want us to just live in the outer world. I mean, you have, we don't see a transcendent religious life in him. Um, I, so I feel like he's, he's just lacking this other component that human beings need. I think human beings need to connect. Well, he lacking we spiritual empathy? lives. What's that? Is he lacking empathy? Or is he just not making, do you think he lacks the capacity or he isn't making the effort? And need, that can go to either of you. I'm wow. I'm not sure if it makes much of a difference, right? I don't know. Well, he doesn't I mean, seem one's to a moral No, that's true. Uh, it's hard to say. I'm thinking of all the quotes of him just saying, well, that's not my business. That's not my concern. Mm-hmm. You know, he's very just focused on himself and his own concerns one of the things that i like about that i think is makes it worth talking about well there are lots of reasons why it's worth talking about capital r romanticism but one of the reasons that i think is interesting is because it's this book in many ways sets up like 
romanticism versus like the enlightenment romanticism versus the industrial revo- like revolution like he's clearly he and charles to varying degrees are clearly like you know ver- like meant to stand in for the the man of the enlightenment right mm-hmm. um uh they buy into the industrial revolution all that kind of stuff and it seems like he's Forrester is very specifically and without a ton of subtlety, which I'm not meaning as a criticism, setting it up in opposition to capital R romanticism. And so one of my questions has been, is Margaret meant to be like a true romantic capital T capital R? Is that, is that what you would say, Angelina? You think that she is a romantic or is she trying to bridge the gap between the two? Is Helen the true romantic, like in the purest, maybe like a misguided romantic, and then he's a misguided man of the Enlightenment, and Margaret's trying to synthesize and harmonize that? Or either of you, how do you read that? Maybe we need Um, to talk about romanticism more. Yes, Helen is a pure romantic. Yes, Wilcox is an Enlightenment man. Um, Margaret is also a romantic the fact that she keeps saying the inner life is what is real to her. That way she has these conversations with Helen, like we need the Wilcoxes. We need the Wilcoxes so we can sit around thinking transcendent lofty thoughts. Okay. Which is a conversation I have with myself every single day. Um, she, but she always is telling to Helen, you know, of course, of course the inner life is what's real. That's not even up for debate. So she is definitely a romantic, but she's, she's trying to figure out how to be a romantic and live in the world. Where, whereas, Helen seems not to be right. Like Helen is that's such a, like she's caught so caught up in the romantic moment of I'm going to rescue these people. Right. And she just barges in. And the Margaret says, you brought two starving people on a train or halfway across mm-hmm. England. And she's like, Oh yeah, I guess I did. That was maybe not the smartest thing, Like, but, the, but it was just this grand gesture, right? I'm going to rescue these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's take a step back here because there was a, we talked about this idea of romanticism last week and there was some chatter about it on Facebook and so I think it's probably worth at least just making sure we're clear on the terms that we're using here so romanticism I keep saying capital R Angelina why don't you talk like kind of define that for us and then Tim I'd like you to jump in and just add anything that you think needs to be added to that okay well, so I'll try to give the short summary because this is a this is a great passion of mine so first of that's all why, that's why I let you go first maybe I should let Tim go first and then let <laughs> you fill in with what you feel uh, uh, okay so first of all we need to understand that the word romance is a, is a word describing a literary form, okay? The way that it is commonly used today is not the way that it was originally understood. A medieval romance was a very particular kind of redemption story. Can I, can I ask you a question real quick? Yes. So when you say the word as it is commonly used today, you mean romance like as in... Like warm, fuzzy Valentine's feelings of love. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Now, they're related, okay? The particular form of the medieval romance, their, your quest and, and all of the allegory that went with that, it ended with the knight slaying the dragon and getting the princess, okay? So it does end. It does sort of have the story, guy meets girl, guy loses girl to dragon, guy overcomes <laughs> obstacles and gets girl, okay? That so is, That is the worst, the dragon. That, okay, so, but because it does have that ending, it yeah. over time, the word romance gets reduced to guy gets the girl. And that's how you end up with the word romance, which is a literary form, just like epic, right? A, a romance was the thing that came after epic. Um, so when you say romance, you're talking about novel, epic, you're talking about literary form. But it comes to be commonly used as something that is concerned with feelings of love and male-female relationships um, because they reduced the form. Okay, now, the Romantics, capital R, get their name 
because what ends up happening is Middle Ages becomes passe. Everything about the Middle Ages becomes rejected and old-fashioned and scorned. You have the Enlightenment. You have the neoclassical period. They, are re- they reject all the medieval forms. They reject uh, medieval syntax. They reject um, all the themes of the Middle Ages. Shakespeare's out of fashion. King Arthur's out of fashion. Chaucer's out of fashion. And um, they also reject... Objectivity at all is kind of out of fashion. Yes, they reject, quote-unquote, fancy, which is their word for the imagination. Mm -hmm. Reason is exalted. The imagination is considered to be a hindrance to knowing things, like even knowing God. Now, this is me reducing it very much. There's a lot more to it, obviously. Um, they want simple, straightforward language, whereas the medievals wanted right, archaic right. languages, which intentionally was supposed to have multiple layers of meaning because life is a mystery. And you can't just know things. There's levels of meaning, and you got to wrestle with meaning. But the neoclassics like, nope, you know, this is a sentence. It has one meaning. I'm going to tell you. It's straight. The idea that uh, clarity is a virtue for writing, that's a neoclassical virtue. That is not a medieval virtue. Okay, so... The romantics then come into play. Well, it's also a Greek one, but they wouldn't have written it. Right. Okay. Well, yes, it's a neoclassical yeah. value because they were going back to the Greeks. All right. Yeah. So the romantics come onto the scene and they are rejecting the neoclassicists, right? They are called the romantics because they want the medieval romance form. They bring back the archaic language. This is why Keats is writing a million poems about some weird medieval knight wandering through the forest. This is why they're writing King Arthur tales. This is why they're painting paintings of King Arthur and Shakespeare. And they have these weird poems because they're trying desperately to get back to a medieval sensibility. They reintroduce wonder into the world. They argue passionately for the value of the imagination. And they say that a man's imagination is necessary to grasp God. You cannot grasp God via reason alone. They argue for mystery and wonder. They argue for the transcendent reality as being the premier reality, right? There's that line in 23 where it talks about... um how she was trying to penetrate to the inner depths of a building. I don't know if yes. you remember that. And I kept thinking that's, that's the idea. That's, that's capital R romantic, right? Yeah, so when exactly. I say that I'm a capital R romantic, I mean, I am primarily concerned with seeing the transcendent reality behind everything. I'm interested in the imagination and wonder. Um, so while the romantics certainly were concerned about love, that wasn't primarily what they were concerned with. Love, of course, for them was transcendent um, and was something of a mystery and was something that could enter them into a great mystery. But romantic capital R has, it's a whole view of reality, one in which embraces imagination and wonder and mystery and the transcendent reality. And one of the ways that it ties into, particularly, I think, 22 and 23, is that if you, so if you've, like, if you've read Wordsworth, for example, you, you know that they cared about like place, like that there was yes. a transcendent value and uh, to place that the place itself, like nature and, you know, nature generally, but also yes, they, each of them had very specific places that mattered to them. So they believed that specific places could work within us and develop and, and move our imaginations that they would, you know, uh, Wordsworth talked about the idea that um, poetry is the emotions that like emotion that creates feeling is what generates poetry. Like you can't create poetry unless the imagination has stirred your emotions. And he didn't really mean that like the way we think of it now mm-hmm. he meant it on a deeper level. And so that place, you could go to a place itself that would stir your imagination and that would lead to true poetics. And so here we have Margaret. One of the reasons I asked about her, whether she's a romantic is that it feels like in a lot of ways, she's becoming more of a romantic, like a capital R romantic. 
like as she goes to Howard's end and the place begins to move her and stir her imagination, she's becoming more of a romantic in the way that Wordsworth would have thought of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I don't know how you guys agree with that, but that's the what I, that's the question I was asking myself. Is, that's interesting. Yeah, one of the things that's happening to her here is that she is becoming more romantic in the purest sense of the word, not like Helen, where Helen's like an ext- this kind of extremist version of it. She doesn't. Helen lacks the nuance that Margaret is picking yeah, up. Yeah, Helen is a little bit out of touch with reality. I think that's part of what's what's going on here, and so. Um, the romantics sometimes get perceived as they rejected reason and embraced emotion. That's actually not true. They, they never rejected reason. Right. They, they rejected reason as the sole means by which you could know God or know anything for them because the, the neoclassicals completely rejected the imagination as being untrustworthy and, and a hindrance to being able to reach God. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, true, the true romantic position, not that it doesn't get, you know, just like Helen knocked out of whack, but the true mm-hmm. rom- romantic position is that the imagination and reason together are both needed for us to fully know something, that the imagination is an aid to reason not something to be afraid of or rejected. Attention, actually, uh, quite a few of the threads on, on the Close Reads page mentioned that this is a tension that is very much still felt, right? We still have people who are very worried about giving fairy tales to children, right? You got to give them historical fiction. You got to stick with the facts. And they get nervous about kids being a little too imaginative, right? That's that same enlightenment romantic tension. What is the role of the imagination and wonder and mystery in knowing something? So you guys want to hear uh, uh, some some fun little tidbits about romanticism in this book? Yes. Tell me some tidbits. I think you're going to like this. And Tim, there's one I think you're going to like too. I'm excited. I was looking for something else and I ran across two facts that I think are kind of fun. I'll do the kind of neutral one that I don't think you're going to get quite as excited about. Um, I never knew this, but the you know like how they talk about a um, buildings roman, like the coming of age novel? Mm -hmm. So the root word for novel is actually, or the original, like the, the German word, like where it's etymologically the root word that eventually became what we understand as novel is actually Roman, mm-hmm. which comes from romance. And so the, the, when they were originally talking about novels in the early romanticism, when the novel was beginning, they viewed it as an extension and, and a new way of exploring capital R romanticism, particularly in Germany, which my understanding leads is, I mean, you could correct that if that's not exactly your understanding. No, I think that's exactly right. But that brings me to, I went down a rabbit hole and I ran across a fun fact. Did you know that early romanticism, particularly in Germany in the 1780s and 90s, I think that would be right, um, first came to be associated with literature and poetry by a circle around two brothers named August and Friedrich. And guess what their last name was? Was it Schlegel? It was. <gasps> How interesting. So he's clearly 115 years later. Whatever. And this is why he keeps contrasting the German and the English way. Mm-hmm. So these German, the early, early German romanticism wasn't as concerned with poetry is, is basically what I was reading. And I didn't, I wasn't able to read as much on this as I'd like, but then it became to be associated when the followers of these two brothers, these two poets and critics and, and artists, they started applying it to poetry and literature. And that eventually was one of the things that apparently led like Wordsworth and Coleridge, Coleridge in particular was a huge fan of these guys and he was a huge influence. And so 
that cannot i mean that can't be an accident right what what right no i mean paul ridge and wordsworth just for our listeners are credited with having um uh created the romantic movement in in england uh 1792 we don't usually have a date but the preference to uh lyrical ballads which was the collection of poetry that Wordsworth and Coleridge wrote together in the preface to that Wordsworth lays out romanticism right and that uh, what is happening here is that we are we are you know um, how's it go that a poetry is a oh I'm gonna blow it a memory recollected in tranquility is that it yeah yeah I think that's what it is and that's where I was talking about the the memory the imagination turns it into emotion which allows you to turn it into poetry was his sort of super that's like the super simplified version of sort of his thesis about how poetry works so yes i had not previously made the connection that coleridge then is introducing these things into england via germany but that makes sense because you have that dark romanticism coming out of germany wagner and then uh goethe with you know the sturm and dang and Mm -hmm. all of that like this intense sorrows of young birther exactly and when i say this dark romanticism i'm talking about like that tormented soul that cannot you know have that transcendent moment they kill themselves or they die of grief you know it's that And even within the English romantic movement, there's the light romanticism and the darker romanticism. So again, we're speaking very generally, and And, um, you know, Byron is very different than Keats, very different than Wordsworth. Yeah, and interestingly, the American versions of that tended, tended, from what I understand to be much more German in their approach. So a lot of I was the- just going to say, actually, I took a, so I took a class on this super, super early American lit, like colonial American lit. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And we read the sorrows of young Werther because that was a very influential book on Hawthorne and those, those early American ones. Yeah. So I don't, I, I totally yeah, agree. Through Poe really was, it was We've probably completely lost our audience at this point. Cause I'm totally doing <laughs> No, that. We, haven't. we out, haven't out here, but yes, I never thought about this before, but I would definitely not draw a straight line between from English romanticism to American. American romanticism, I would go German American. I think that's absolutely right. Well, of course, much of, you know, you look at much of where the people lived who were writing early American literature, and they were living in areas that were pretty German. <laughs> so, like, um, uh, who wrote um, the who wrote the Headless Horseman one? I'm drawing a blank. Now. Irving, Washington Irving. Irving. Yeah, like a lot of those stories, Irving stories, Hawthorne, as you mentioned, um, and all the way up through Poe, that's all very German. So a lot of the American literature archetypes, which we'll talk a little bit about in True Grit, I think, um, the forest, uh, all those things. Like that's yes, all, that's, that's the forest. That's a huge German archetype. Absolutely. Yeah. And it makes sense, right? They lived... Yes. In, in, in England, it's much more the, the garden versus yeah. like open spaces. The, the lake districts, you know. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, Tim, would you like to talk? <laughs> <laughs> I was happy. I was enjoying... That, that was, was great. awesome, David. Thank you. I'm super excited now to make that connection. <laughs> so we're definitely right that we're interpreting the Schlegel sisters as representing romanticism. So, okay, we don't have a lot of time left, but I think that we should make that connection for listeners who like with a couple of passages here. So, Tim, I wonder if you could read something for me. Be happy to. So chapter 24. Um, this is uh, after... She's been surprised. Uh, Margaret's been surprised in the house and before they go on their little like motor car adventure where she leaps out of the car. Um, there's a, a paragraph that begins, for me, it's like two pages in. It begins with, her evening was pleasant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Can you I've read that whole paragraph? Yeah, read that whole paragraph because she's now back home and she's thinking back on her experience at Howard's End that day. And I think what we're getting here is what I was trying to talk about where it, may, it feels like she's becoming more of a true romantic capital. capital. Yeah. So if you, if you can read that, that'd be awesome. For me, it's on page 182. Okay, cool. Her evening was pleasant. The sense of flux which had haunted her all the year disappeared for a time. She forgot the luggage and the motor cars and the hurrying men who know so much and connect so little. She recaptured the sense of space, which is the basis of all earthly beauty, and, starting from Howard's End, she attempted to realize England. She failed. Visions do not come when we try, though they may come through trying. But an expected love of the island awoke in her, connecting on this side with the joys of the flesh, on that with the, inc on that with the inconceivable. Helen and her father had known this love, Poor Leonard Bast was still groping after mm -hmm. it, but it, had, but it had been hidden from Margaret till this afternoon. It had certainly come through the house and old Miss Avery. Through them, the notion of through persisted. Her mind trembled toward a conclusion, towards a conclusion which only the unwise have put into words. Then, veering back into warmth, it dwelt on ruddy bricks, flowering plum trees, and all the tangible joys of spring. So interesting how he he'll go on these these I don't know if they're rants to just have these sections where he's contemplating her inner life, and then it ends so often with that with a sentence which just drops this metaphor on us, right? Mm -hmm. Dwelt on ruddy bricks, flowering plum trees, and all the tangible joys, and it just ends there, like it that that particular reflection ends with that metaphor it's so interesting and that feels very romance romantic like back medieval romance right like what mm. you're saying where they let the clarity isn't the priority right it's like an it's almost like there's a there's a tone or an energy like a spirit of what that they're trying to get across through the metaphors that's just as important as like a thesis with a defense right oh mm -hmm. absolutely yes but in this paragraph we get two references to the vet to the importance of place Mm -hmm. So the sense of space, which is the basis of all earthly beauty. Um, and then it says that this, the love of Island had come through the house and old Miss Avery. And mm -hmm. then that something in her imagination had been awakened, 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 had been woke by the, uh, by the place. Um, and it, no, I think it, you're absolutely there, right. There's not you? this like, it, she doesn't have to be there for very long, right? Like there's a magic in the place. Which feels like medieval romance too, right? Like, like oh, she's absolutely. been there for like no time, and it opens up something within her. And even just her wandering around in the empty kind of spooky house and having that spooky housekeeper moment—that's like something out of a gothic novel. <laughs> yeah, yes, it is. Um, and that's where it feels like Forrester kind of playing and moving back and forth with these different forms and different archetypes and different motifs and stuff like that like he's sometimes it feels like he's playing with it but it all ends up feeling like it's it's sort of starting to feel like it's coming together if that makes sense well you know hmm. what's interesting too is that line uh, her mind trembled towards a conclusion which only the unwise have put into words well <laughs> i chuckled when i read that because i'm simultaneously reading a book about medieval saints and mystics and that is the one thing that comes through about all of their stories you know saint francis assisti like i can't describe what happened you know thomas uh thomas aquinas like i have to stop writing this book you cannot put into words what I have seen about God. Like this is, this is what the, all these mystical romantic types have in common that you get to this point where they're like, 
I, there are no words for this experience I'm having. So I really, that really struck me because I'm reading this other book at the same time. That's just a very kind of deliberate, medieval, romantic, mystical thing to say. That's not an enlightenment. The enlightenment thinkers are never like, so I had this thought, but I can't put them into words. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's go to the next page then. And Tim, here's another spot for you to, to read because yeah. you're a performer. This next paragraph is super long. Um, but let's finish. Okay, so do you see where it says towards the two-thirds, well, maybe halfway, and it says um, it isn't the place that would fetch one of your artistic crew, and that, that's, that's Mr. Uh, Wilcox talking, and it ends there, and he has to block all this in yes. one paragraph. So can yes. you start with no, it wasn't, and read to the end of that paragraph? Sure. Oh, there it is. Okay, I got it now. Page 183 for me, okay, still yeah, in two, two chapter 15. 24. No, it wasn't, and if he did not quite understand, let me start over, you guys. Take two. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't. And if he did not quite understand it, the artistic crew would still less. It was English. And the white elm that she saw from the window was an English tree. No report had prepared her for its peculiar glory. I love that It was line. neither mm-hmm. warrior, nor lover, nor god. In none of these roles did the English excel. It was a comrade bending over the house, strength and adventure in its roots, but in its utmost finger fingers, tenderness, and the girth that a dozen men could not have spanned, became in the end evanescent, till pale bud clusters seemed to float in the air. It was a comrade. House and tree transcended any simile of sex. Margaret thought of them now, and was to think of them through many a windy night in London day. But to compare either to man, to woman, always dwarfed the vision. Yet they kept within limits of the human. Their message was not of eternity, but of hope on this side of the grave. As she stood in the one, gazing at the other, truer truer relationships had gleamed. Okay, so here's a thought I'm having while you're reading this. Okay, now that David has gone further in my mind to, to show me what's happening here is, is English versus German, as well as romanticism versus this enlightenment thinking. Uh, here, the tree is English, right? And I'm wondering, if is the tree Mr. Wilcox? I mean, that's a, Mr. Wilcox is not a warrior. He's not a lover. He's not a god, but he is a comrade, right? He's like this overseeing safe comrade of Margaret. Like, do you feel like that's, that's happening there? I'm hearing echoes of that. Also, I hadn't thought of it before this second, but she's talking about that it's kind of sexless. I think Mr. Wilcox seems kind of sexless. And that's why it's so shocking when you find out he had this mistress and why Margaret cannot put it together in her head. Like, it's just so, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) When was this? Like, because he's just so, I don't know, buttoned up. (laughs) What am I trying to say? Help me out here, guys. (laughs) Does he not strike y'all as kind of sexless? I mean, the kiss and all that. It's just yeah, yeah, that he's yeah. not a lover, you know, the the, the stereotypical lover. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's not a warrior, you're right. I, the only thing I'm wondering is about that. He he does sort of bend over the how, like that sort of, he's overly protective of her, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the ten, in its utmost fingers, tenderness. I'm wondering about that line, but, you know, maybe that's, she senses within him, like he's he's tender, but not really loving, if that makes sense. I don't know if... I don't know, Tim, what do you think? I think it's a great question. I didn't, I didn't read it as Mr. Wilcox. Of all of the characters in the book, 
he most snugly fits it. But I don't know. I don't know, Angelina. Okay, so how can this can this little coda to this chapter uh, help us with this? Another touch and the account of her day is finished. They entered the garden for a minute, and to Mr. Wilcox's surprise, she was right. Teeth, pig's teeth, could be seen in the bark of the elm tree, <laughs> just the white tips of them showing. Extraordinary, he cried. Who told you? I heard of it in one, one winter in London, was her answer, for she too avoided mentioning Mrs. Wilcox by name. And like that chapter just ends there. And he feels, Forster really feels the need to tell us this, this thing, right? Because mm-hmm. he's telling well, us about her day. And, then he and says, they've discussed it earlier, if you recall. And right, she asks yep. him, is it true about the yeah. two? Like, that's utter nonsense, girl. But then it turns out to be true, which mm. is, okay, so here, again, this is just thinking out loud. So I'm more than prepared to be wrong here. But <laughs> the, the elm tree is talked about so much. It's obviously a symbol of something, right? Mm-hmm. And I have not been sure what it was a symbol of. But the idea of it being somehow connected to the way that Mr. Wilcox is, is interesting, especially that he's surprised to find out there's teeth in the tree. Like it, it feels like it's that same kind of disconnected. Like he's not, Margaret tells us again and again, he's not connected to his inner life. Like he doesn't know himself, doesn't want to know himself. He's very comfortable how he is. And so I guess the fact that he's surprised that there are teeth in the tree, but Margaret already knew kind of fits that motif we've seen through these chapters of her feeling like she knows him better than he knows herself. In fact, she, she knows him so well, she knows not to press him on these things or try to get him to see himself. Yeah. Hmm. But I'm happy to be wrong. I just, I'm, I've been trying to figure out what the deal with the tree is. So that's, there you go. This is my first little effort to try to make sense of why we keep talking about this tree. Feels yeah. like it's probably going to come back up again. I'm I sure. have a feeling it will too. Chapter 25 has some hilarious lines, by the way. Um, like I feel like Forster's really having fun with this, like where he says that the whole system's wrong and she must challenge it. And it made the whole chapter made me think of it, like Anne of Green Gables or something, like when Anne Shirley gets like super all up on arms about something and decides she's gonna solve all the problems. <clears throat> it was a woman in revolt who was hobbling away from him, and the sight was too strange to leave any room for anger. He recovered <laughs> that was a great line. <laughs> that was a great line. Charles. He recovered himself when the others caught them up. Their sort he understood. He commanded them to go back. And then it says that later on, it's it's um, Charles is contemplating what had just happened. And it says, um, Charles was depressed. That woman had a tongue. She would bring worse disgrace on his father before mm. she had done with him. He strolled out onto the castle, mound to think the matter over. This is really mm. interesting here, too. The evening was exquisite. On three sides of him, a little river whispered, full of messages from the west. Above his head, the ruins made patterns against the sky. He carefully reviewed their dealings with his family until he fitted Helen and Margaret and Julie into an orderly conspiracy. I love the... This is, the, <laughs> this is an interesting dichotomy because he's sitting here, he's trying to figure it out, right? And the river is whispering mm-hmm. and it's whispering messages from the west and there's like, the ruins are making patterns against the sky. They're making signs, they're making symbols. They're trying to tell him something and he's ignoring it and he's trying to fit them all into this little... And that's a very romantic idea that nature is going to tell you something. But, and Charles can't see it. Nope. Like he's, of all the flaws, his biggest flaw seems to be, or his flaws derive from the fact that he cannot hear the river whispering or see the signs that the ruins are make against the, making against the sky. And he has nothing to compensate for that. Like Margaret can't even respect, well, he's, he's a man about town. He can make it. Yeah. Like yeah. he, there's nothing about him that's virtuous or attractive. 
and in fact, he counters it by fitting people into conspiracy, which is such an interestingly chosen word by Forrester there. It's not into a plan or, a, or, or some kind of order. It's an orderly conspiracy. Right. He's suspicious. Yep. And, there's, and it's like there's a, there's, a, there's a lack of truth in it. There's a lack I'm of like. I'm super curious if in the end, Charles and Helen are both going to end up looking to us like they just, they're two extremes and they just don't fit in the world. I don't know. Mm. I'm still not sure what I think about Helen. Mm. I also thought it was just amazingly hilarious and wonderful that that Charles doesn't get Margaret so much that he thinks she's in love with me. <laughs> I know, I know. Like, oh my goodness, she is coming to seduce me. He yeah, clearly that's it's the what's only happening. possible explanation. <laughs> she's a woman alone and having a nature walk at night. Clearly, she's and, after then, me. and then like ten seconds later. Oh, never mind. <laughs> uh-huh. I love it that um, Forrester, what does he say? It'll take me a second to find the sentence. He, Charles kind of assumes that she's in love with him. And then Forrester tells us that she hasn't even noticed him. Did you exactly. notice that? Remember that? Exactly. He's not, he's like so nondescript. He's like not even worth bixing. Yeah. Kept on Making... her way without noticing him. And he admitted <laughs> that he had wronged her on this point. <laughs> <laughs> It's like it sounds. It sounds like Woodhouse, like like Bertie Wooster's, like this. This woman is obviously in love with me, and then like, well, maybe not. Maybe I have <laughs> yeah. misunderstood. Yeah. <laughs> hey Tim, hey. I'm going to give you the floor for some final thoughts because, for obvious reasons. Oh yes, I think I've said plenty. Your turn. Uh, my a question going forward for me is, um, I just still remain curious about Leonard Bast. He's the only male character who seems to have any hope of <laughs> progress. I, I think Charles and Mr. Wilcox, for me, they feel lost at this point. Maybe Mr. Wilcox what? can find something, but David, you, say. Well, I'm going to ask you a question, though. Would you say that um, that if the book does an about-face and gives us a sort of redemption arc for Mr. Wilcox, yeah. that, that it will be problematic for you? Or, or, or are you saying like that it's not set up for that and if it does that, it won't, be, it won't feel earned? It'll be oh, miraculous? Or, or, is the, or are you not saying that? No, I think he could turn around Mr. Okay. Wilcox. Okay. You just I just think don't it's see... Unlikely. Yeah, I just think it's unlikely. Okay. okay. And I think it could be satisfying if Mr. Wilcox turns around. It would have to, I mean, he would have to show a real deft touch to turn that glacier around in a hundred pages but i think you know forster can do it yeah, yeah um so yeah i'm just curious about i still remain curious about leonard bass i feel like i'm starting to get to know helen certainly starting to get to know margaret i feel like forster's sympathies are with them and i i really appreciate that i wonder if his yeah i just wonder what's going to happen to leonard bass and i also wonder if well, and he, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and ask the question. Is Leonard Bast's spiritual future reliant upon his economic situation? What do you mean by his spiritual future? Can he... Can he enjoy the fruits of mysticism or the incandescent nature of nature or a, just a deeper inner life given his socioeconomic condition. Hmm. 
I do think that's a question Forster's raising, don't you? Mm -hmm. I do, definitely. Hmm. It's that's a, a good very one to keep an eye on. interesting question. Well, Tim, we didn't let you talk very much, but you do get the award for best question. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be a fun one. I, I'm really looking forward to seeing where that goes. And please do not apologize for like you guys taking the mic. That was terrific. I was a, I was a podcast listener for a little bit and I was like, Oh, no wonder people like this show. <laughs> yeah, they say there's who knows who knows what people really think right 24 hours is a long time every day to fill up people need something <laughs> oh i that's come on come on like all these hard-working mothers they're looking for like they're just like gosh what's on the tube tonight no exactly. sorry sorry they're, they're on the podcast app and eh, eh, not eh. Eh. all right we've listened to everything else yeah, okay, let's try like, this close reads. We got like an hour and a half of something to fill. It's better than like staring at the paint dry. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know. I don't know why that was my voice for like homeschool mom. <laughs> yeah, you gotta have a more like frazzled, harried, high-pitched, you know, I'm drowning voice to really Yeah, right, right. Mine was like the villain like the like the villain's henchman in like a bad crime novel. I was like, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Well, um, Angelina and Tim, thank you for another uh, another good episode. Angelina, thanks for some really good thoughts and help, help, helping clarify some of that stuff on romanticism. I think that that's like really yeah. unlocking a lot of great stuff in this book. So thanks for that. Thank you for your research about the German thing. I'm super excited about that. That was interesting. That wasn't research. That was um, um, the universe. Wormhole. Yeah, the universe <laughs> is giving us, giving us one. That is uh, such a romantic view and thing to say. I love that. <laughs> I always say the truth will be revealed. You don't go looking for it. So there you go. So really, we should all be going down Wikipedia wormholes. Um, right. You never know what truth you're going to find at the back of a Wikipedia closet. So um, they should sponsor our show now after that. <laughs> I'm that. But speaking of speaking of uh, sponsors, where you can go on wormholes and find truth. Uh, thanks again to the Honors College of Belmont Abbey. If you want to learn more about them, you can head over to, as I said earlier, www.bac.edu/honors. That was a fantastic voice. Well done. <laughs> www.bac.edu/honors. And remember, there's no U in honors, even though there should be. Um, I guess that's it. Any anything else you want to say before we go? Or are we given is Done. an hour and a half enough for people? Yeah. I think people have gotten their fill, yes. All right. Well, thanks to Angelina and to Tim. Thanks to everyone who's been listening and supporting the show through Patreon for Angelina and for Tim and for all of us here at the Cersei Institute. I'm David Kern saying farewell and close reads. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.